You're now listening to episode 138 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom Costelli joined here with Bill Ham. Bill is Chief Operating Officer and the driving force behind Broadwell Property Group. He has upwards of 20 years experience in real estate and a proven track record in identifying, acquiring, operating, and divesting of large footprint multifamily housing as well as single family housing. He is also a coach and mentor to the future titans of the multifamily investing industry. In today's episode, we discuss a creative financing strategy known as master lease options and when to use them. We answer the question, should you use third-party property management or build your own property management company? We also discuss where Bill believes we're heading in the market cycle and so much more. Before we dive right into today's episode, we do want to let everybody know that the Real Estate CPA is hosting the second annual Tax and Legal Summit for Real Estate Investors on Saturday, February 27th and Sunday, February 28th, 2021. At this event, you'll learn about lucrative tax and asset protection strategies from top legal and tax experts in the industry. Strategies include the real estate professional status, short-term rental loophole, how to use passive losses to minimize your taxes, cost segregation studies, 1031 exchanges, self-directed retirement accounts, 2020 tax law changes, also known as the CARES Act, entity structuring, estate planning, and so much more. Don't miss this incredible event designed to save you thousands in taxes and help protect the assets and wealth you've worked so hard to build. Head over to www.taxandlegalsummit.com to grab your tickets for free. That's right. This year, the Tax and Legal Summit is free to attend. Visit www.taxandlegalsummit.com to grab your tickets today. Bill, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been in real estate coming up on 16 years now, a little over 15 years. Started off as a corporate pilot, so kind of came out of school, started flying airplanes, figured out that a pilot is not very important on the ground. You know, real important from takeoff to landing while you're actually flying that airplane, completely worthless uh, in between flights. And so uh, little did I know at the time that there's a whole lot of sitting around and waiting as a pilot. And so uh, being a relatively hyper person, I got completely bored, went out, started watching friends of mine do real estate and uh, flipping houses mostly. And I kind of had the aha moment of, uh, you know, these are friends of mine. We were all hanging out last night. They're, they're out flipping houses and I'm getting up and going to work. And I went, wait a minute now, something's wrong here. So I, uh, I closed my very first deal, which was a duplex. And at the time, uh, this was in 05. So at the time I had saved up uh, $10,000 and the duplex was cash flow at 300 bucks. And that's what I walked away from aviation with and said, you know, going into real estate, I'm going to figure this out. And I did uh, a lot of bumps and bruises along the way, but I figured it out. And then slowly over time, got into multifamily, um, just small multifamily starting with, and then just got larger and larger. And I've been uh, over about 1,100 units now, um, several thousand in management that I've dealt with over the years, built a management company and upwards of 16 employees and currently the uh, chief operating officer of Broadwell Property Group. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Nice, nice. 
So I, I know one of your specialties is creative financing. And I think, I think you acquired your first 400 properties without traditional financing. So like the conventional financing from the bank, would you be able to talk a little bit about how you ended up doing that? Yeah, it was 400 units. So it wasn't 400 separate properties, but it was 400, uh, 402 units um, ranging from houses. Again, some of my first small multifamily, even to one of my first largest syndicated apartment deals, which was 152 units. Every single one of those deals was taken down with some sort of creative financing for the original debt. Meaning I didn't walk into a lender, bank, Fannie, Freddie, wherever, sit down and get a mortgage, put down 20, 30%, qualify for a loan. I didn't do that. So it was either master lease options, um, a lot of seller financing, uh, a few debt partners, lines of credit, credit cards. I mean, you you, you name it, I was out there making it up uh, in the beginning to, to get started because I had no money and no experience. And all I could do is just learn how to solve people's problems and, and hopefully trade that problem solving solution for real estate, seeing as I didn't have any money. So it was a whole lot of sweat equity, trading a lot of sweat equity and creativity. And, uh, you know, and that, that's how I got my first real estate portfolio started was um, just getting out there and, and swapping hard sweat and labor and creativity and uh, got going. It's, um, it's difficult, but um, it really, really paid off quite well. Nice. And I know one of the ways you mentioned, you know, I know a lot of people on, on the podcast are familiar with seller financing, but one yeah. of them was master lease options. Yeah. Would you be able to just discuss, you know, sure. what that is and how you use it? Yeah. Master lease options. That's a, a, a lot less known technique. And uh, there's actually very little information out there on creative financing and certainly on master lease options. You know, if you go out and try and look this up, you won't find much. And the, the book that I'm coming out with uh, or has come out, have come out with really details a lot of that. To answer your question, uh, a master lease option is two contracts, separate contracts. But the idea is that this document is going to give me the right to rent a seller's property with the right to purchase it someday in the future at a set price. All right. So Tom, we'd basically say you've got uh, you know some real estate for whatever reason, you've got a problem, maybe you're a burned out landlord, distressed, whatever the case and you don't feel like fixing up the property, it won't qualify for traditional financing. So I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna say, hey, Tom, rent me the property. Now would be the master lease. I'm gonna come in and, and bring some uh, money, maybe some effort, some whatever the case, stabilize your asset. And we're gonna choose a price right now, today, million bucks, whatever, you know? And then I'm gonna have a certain amount of time in which to buy the property for the price that we agreed on. So the, the gist of it, is I'm going to rent a property with the ability to go in and hopefully straighten out whatever the repairs, the, the distress, the issues are, bring the value up above the option price, the price you and I negotiated back when it was distressed. So it's sort of a rent to own with the ability to buy that property at a set price someday in the future. So the idea is, again, as I said, you bring the value up uh, above the option price, and then you can either sell the asset wholesale, you could actually sell the master lease contract to someone else or um, exercise the option to purchase and, and buy the property yourself, which you would obviously be getting at a, a favorable discount. So that's roughly what a master lease option uh, does and is for. That's really interesting. It's like you're coming in, it's like a value-add type of play, but you're taking a lot of the risk off the table. Right. And then you have the option to take the upside You know, if it all pans out that way. Were you doing this more like single family homes or like multifamily or was it? All like the above. Yep. So in, in single family, it's a lease option. 
we just using this term master lease option when we're talking about multiple units. So really, I guess the term master lease option would, would be a function of multifamily. If you're doing houses, it's just lease option, same thing, same structure. But yeah, um, I did start off doing a lot of these in, in single family, small multifamily. The largest master lease option I've done was a 108 unit apartment complex in middle Georgia. And I operated that for about three years and then actually chose not to purchase the property, chose not to exercise the option. I got to, to test drive it, kick the tires. I found a bunch of stuff wrong with it that we didn't know, structural problems. So come the end of that three years, uh, I chose not to exercise the option and I walked away. But I had brought the property up to a level that the seller was able to go out and take it out of the market and get full price for it, even though I didn't buy it. So I still left the seller in a really good position. And, and cash flow, I cash flowed a lot. That's the nice thing about that master lease part, not the option, but the master lease is how we control the cash flow. So it's a way of creating and controlling a stream of revenue without necessarily owning the property. That's the key to creative financing, especially when we go, and this is going to be really important over the next six months to the next three or four years, if we're going into a recession cycle, debt pulls back. Somebody has kind of a distressed asset. How are we going to get these deals done? Well, through lease options and things where we go ahead and take them over, bring them out of that distressed you know, area, and then, and then exercise the option. So that's why it's going to be important going forward. I've done a ton of those, but uh, yeah, that's, that's a lease option. And then again, it, does, it works for all types of uh, real estate class. It can be single family, multifamily, uh, any type. It's just a, a negotiation structure. How are lease options beneficial to the tenants and potential buyers? <laughs> Um, for the tenants, that's a great question. The tenants probably would not directly benefit from a lease option. What they would hopefully benefit from is you coming in with fresh agenda, fresh attention. Maybe, maybe the seller is burned out. Maybe they're out of capital. Maybe they're not taking care of the tenants as far as repairs and maintenance are concerned, you know, things of this nature. So it could be a benefit to the tenant directly if as a new operator, you come in and do a better job as a landlord than the sellers do. And so that would be of direct benefit to the tenant. The seller, what the seller is going to get out of this is an exit, uh, an exit that they may not otherwise have had access to. And that's an important question because it really brings up the, hey, have we all been doing a lot of creative financing over the last five years? No. Why? Because creative financing about, is about solving problems. Well, in an up cycle, when the market's just going up, 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 and up, if some seller has a problem, they can probably just take the property out of the market and sell it. Well, when the market declines and lenders start pulling back, one of the first things lenders pull back on is what we call distressed assets or value add. I always make the joke, it's value add on the up cycle and then a distressed asset on the down cycle, right? We got to change the nomenclature. Well, on the downside, lenders start pulling away from these distressed assets. And that right there is where the seller is going to wind up in a unique situation. The market is not in their favor anymore. And why? Because you and I can't go get a loan that's worth getting in cash flowing and buying the property. Now that seller is going to have a problem, a problem they have not had in the last five years. That's why creative financing is very timely. And it's why I'm bringing this information out now, because you're really going to make use of it over the next few years, even though we haven't been using it very much over the last several years. Okay. Yeah. That, that was actually going to be my next question yeah. is it, in the up cycle that we've had, I presume that you haven't used this as often as- As often. Past, yeah. yeah. I have gotten hits here and there, but it is not the, it was not been the mainstay of fun, uh, funding and financing over the last five years. It was prior to that in that recession window. 
And so, you know, that's one thing I teach a lot about is market cycles and understanding the market cycles and being able to predict market cycles and, and what comes with each cycle. You know, how is real estate in an up cycle compared to a down cycle? What, what strategies do we have to change? Well, you know, back in 05 through 08, well, excuse me, probably 08 to 2010, there are deals everywhere. There's no money. Nobody wanted to invest in real estate. Lenders didn't want to lend on real estate. But there were deals everywhere. Then fast forward and let's back up six months, a year ago, maybe right before COVID even, there's money everywhere and not a deal to be had. It's everything's super expensive. You know, cap rates are very compressed. A lot of lending, but so what? The numbers, the underwriting is terrible at the moment. So it, it shifts back and forth where there's available funds and available deals. And there kind of can be counter sunk in their uh, cycle there. So that's what I'm saying. Hey, if we go forward into a lack of funding, lack of lending cycle, these are the tricks that you use to replicate debt when you can't get debt or, you know, or if you're new to the business or if you're uh, don't have a lot of cash or a lot of experience, these are also techniques that you can use if you find the right seller, you know, so, to, uh, to do it. So, so you've mentioned cycles and you, you just mentioned a, a minute ago that these creative financing options are going to become more prevalent over the next few years. What's making you educate us on cycles? Where are we at? Sure. Well, uh, you know, most market cycles, there's four market cycles, basically. And you can kind of research business market cycles. If anybody's listened to this and want to kind of research it quickly, it's the easiest thing. You have four market cycles, sort of the expansion, uh, the peak, the, the recession and the trough. You know, expansion, meaning we're going up, market's doing great, everything's going up, up, up. Uh, sort of peak is where we're at the top leveled off. You have the, you know, the contraction or the recession cycle that's kind of going down trough, you know, we're at the bottom and then back up again would be another expansion cycle. So I would say historically our last real trough market was sort of the 08 to 2010 kind of range. That's the market crash. You know, we're down the bottom from 2011, 12 ish, we've been in an up cycle. So we've been in an up, a very long up cycle for the last eight years or so, which now we're up at the peak. Prices are, are at a peak, you know, and we're going to go into a recession. What makes me think we're going to go into a recession cycle, lenders? All you got to do is watch the debt. When you see debt starting to pull back from the market, it's a tip you're going to go into a recession cycle. Lenders can kind of see forward, they can see the market cycles coming. And so they stop lending as much, which then is just a self-fulfilling prophecy. We go right into a recession because they quit funding stuff. So it's really very debt-driven as a lot of our economy is debt-driven. And so watch lender behavior. Okay, well, right now, what are lenders doing? Fannie, Freddie, got to put up a year's worth of principal interest tax and insurance. They're claiming that's COVID, whatever. Uh, you got um, escrows are higher. Agency debt, Fannie Freddie, very difficult to come by as far as resume is concerned. You know, if you're brand new to real estate, agency debt's going to be tough to get right now because they're really looking for uh, quality borrowers. So it's not about interest rates. You know, everybody keeps talking about, oh, the interest rates are low. So what? Who cares? Look at the terms. Look at how hard it is to qualify for some of these loans. That's the real thing to watch. And that's loan to values are coming down, right? See, that's all tip-offs that the lenders are starting to get nervous and that's a tip off. We're going into a recession cycle. And that's why I'm saying, hey, as soon as these lenders really pull back, they're going to have a flight of quality. They're going to stop lending on, on distressed assets. But that doesn't mean the seller doesn't need to sell them. Incomes creative financing. And, and that's how we're going to really uh, build out portfolios in a distressed market, which is coming. It's not here today, but it's coming. That makes a lot of sense. So switching gears slightly from financing to property management, 
We do know that you you built your own property management company, yeah. 18 employees. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, did you start off that way or why create your own property management company? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I always, I, I kind of remind my employees a lot of time. Um, it was actually a joke originally that it was just me. And I had bought some houses and I had a, you know, a handful of properties. And so I had this sort of aha moment one day. I thought, well, you know what? What if I set up a separate management company? And it's just an LLC. I can go on the Secretary of State and just form an LLC for like 125 bucks. So I did. And then I thought, all right, I got an idea. What if I make a management contract between the owner LLC and the property manager LLC? It's still just me. I'm one person in both LLCs. And I, but my thought was, hey, I'm building a management resume. And I thought, well, maybe somebody will believe that one day. And then accidentally, it turned into a real management company um, through necessity. I just kept kind of managing the assets, starting off with you know the beginning, the small properties. Wind up hiring one of my best friends to come on help me run it. And then I uh, actually hired my fiance, who's my wife now, and then uh, just kept growing it from there. So it was largely necessity in my case, you know, not having much money and having kind of walked away from the aviation career. I needed the cash flow to eat. You know, I needed the management fees to eat. So I really couldn't afford a management company is, is probably uh, why I started the company. But again, it was kind of a joke. I didn't think anybody would take it seriously. And then it accidentally turned into a real company. Uh, you know, now what 10, 10, almost 10 years later. So you imagine like multifamily and single family? Are you like I was, yeah. Um, almost only exclusively multifamily. The only reason I was managing some single family was some of my portfolio that was left over. And I literally just sold it uh, about six months ago. So yeah, I, I, six months ago, I would have said yes, we're managing single family, but not only multifamily at the moment. And uh, are you like concentrated in one market or do you have, are you across multiple markets? Um, Southeastern markets. I live in Atlanta, so I'd prefer to do stuff in Atlanta if we can help it. But yeah, we're in Southeastern markets. My portfolio is all in the Georgia market. So Southeastern is a, a market for our area. And I guess when it comes to building a property, like a lot of people use third-party property management. Have you noticed like, what advantages do you see, I guess, if you, you know, in comparison, sure. I guess, to the people who do use? Yeah, I know where you're going with this one here. I'll, I'll kind of give you my advice on the subject when people ask this. What I tell people when they're new to business is you should manage and then not manage and then manage again in that order. All right. So you should get out and manage a few of your properties when you're small. And that's really to kind of learn the business so that you have at least an understanding of what property management is, what it takes and what it costs. But the problem is a management company can come with a tremendous amount of opportunity cost. It's a completely separate business. It has really nothing to do with real estate. It's employees, it's, it's systems, it's management. So stop and think about that before anyone listening decides, oh, look, free money. I'll just set up a management company and this will be free money. No, 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 no. It is not in any way free whatsoever. And that's why I say manage a little bit in the beginning to learn and then stop and go focus on buying and building your portfolio. Once you get up to maybe 500 units, something like that, now you've got some economy of scale, you can go out and hire some bench talent to work in your company, then you bring management back in house. I did not do that. I've been managing everything from day one, and I've seen a lot of my friends grow a real estate portfolio faster than I did because they were not managing themselves and they were strictly going through third party. The upside is I can control my expenses, the upside is I'm very good at property management and I can really learn, uh, I can analyze deals in ways other people can't because I really know how to look into a deal and I can tell you the operations and what's going on. Yes, but that stopped me from growing uh, the portfolio 
you know, for a while because I'm dealing with building a company. So it's it's a double-edged sword. It's good and bad. And that's why I kind of say you should do it in the beginning to learn and then stop. And, you know, when you're in that kind of 10, 20 units, maybe up to a couple of hundred units, you're probably better off letting a third-party management company handle that, learn asset management, build your portfolio, get some economy of scale, and then circle back around and pick it back up. Because those, we'll call those teenage years, you're not a little baby company, but you're not an adult company either. You're kind of just halfway grown up with some pimples and zits, and it's a kind of a growing pains. That's a tough area to, to operate a business in. And uh, that that's why I kind of say eh, it's tough in the middle. <laughs> I like how you said that property management is not like real estate business management. You know, I mean, you're totally right. When you are running a property management company, if you think about it, you you don't really have overhead. You're not selling a product, you're selling a service. And what do you need to deliver the service? You need people. And, you know, I can tell you from experience, managing people at our CPA firm is tough, man. It's a tough, tough thing. So it's not, yeah, it's definitely not something to jump into lightly. You need to be very intentional about it. And it's, I'm sure, extremely different than managing a rental property. My rental property produces every single day of the week. But the CPA firm takes a lot of people management to keep the CPA firm producing. So I'm sure that yeah. property management companies probably the same way. It is totally. And, and it's very uh, employee intensive, which is fine, but it's stable income. It's good cash flow. It's money. It's monthly money. You know, I get paid off the top and then everybody else gets paid. Yes, but hold on. I go to work for that. It's not mailbox money. It's not sit at home and, and you know, open the, the mailbox and here comes all your rich. No, 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 no. It's not like that at all. And I think that's a big misconception that people new to the business have when they hear people like us talking about managing our own properties. And they go, oh, wow, look, all this free money that we're just not collecting. We should collect this free money. Careful, careful, careful. Don't don't let someone talk up property management. It's a great business, but, you know, take everything they say with a grain of salt. It's not free. I think a good way to think about it is mailbox money is return on capital, right? I, I put uh, capital yes. in, I get money back. And, and even if you're doing some amount of work, it's very scalable as long as you have the capital or you use some creative financing techniques to essentially create the capital. But it's important to understand that investing in rentals is a return on capital. If you have more capital, you'll have higher amounts of cash flow typically. <laughs> yeah, I guess 99 times out of 100. But a property management company, just like any service-based business, think about doctors, dentists, attorneys, accountants, any type of service-based business, I can't go and invest more capital into the business. It's really a return on my effort because- That's exactly what I was going to say. It's ROE. <laughs> somebody's always got to be there, right? Always right. got to be there. And that's why like, it's really funny actually. So Tom and I talk about this every once in a while. We'll get like software companies that'll call us up and say, hey, you know, we want to partner with you guys. And I'm like, cool. Yeah, we'd love to partner. What do you want the terms to be? And they're like, well, every lead that we send you, the industry standard is 30%. You give us 30% of revenue. And I'm like, that's the software industry standard. There's no way in hell that's the CPA industry standard right. because my margin is 30%. So I'm not going to go give you 30%. And it's not scalable. Every single person that you send me, I can't cut my costs. I can't increase my margin. Right. The only way that you scale a service-based business is to get more, 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 more. That's how it works. Property management, more under management. I can't go cut my cost because I have to have people to run it on an ongoing basis. So it's very much a return on effort, whether it's your effort or your collective team's effort. But I think it's important to understand. Yeah. It's an opportunity cost. 
that's that's huge. You know, you're you're gonna knuckle down and have to deal with some of this stuff, and you're gonna see deals go by. You're just not gonna have the bandwidth to take on because you're busy making payroll, or you're busy dealing with employees. So make sure that's the right choice. It's not a free one. So I got to ask, you know, it's, you, you mentioned all of your more large part of your portfolio at this point in, in the Georgia yes. area. Like, are you ever going to expand yeah. out? Uh, is that something sure. you're looking to diversify it is. out? Yeah, I mean, I, I go wherever the deals are. Um, at the moment in today's market, Q1 2021, it's a little tough. You know, the price is a little high. I look at deals weekly, but I'm pretty conservative in my approach and, and I'm not hungry. I'm not starving and trying to squeeze a living out of some some cash flow. So I'm I'm functionally sitting tight until some of the metrics come back to the market, some of the sanity comes back to the market. I don't believe the market that we're in is going to last that much longer. The pricing and a lot of the metrics that I think uh, investors have moved away from ignorantly, I don't think it's going to last. And so uh, I'm sitting tight until uh, returns get a little bit better, more or less. Now, I'll do, a deal, I'll do a, good, a deal right now if it's a good deal. But, you know, three caps and four caps, and that's, uh, you know, the, the spread between the A and the C asset class in the cap rate category is way too narrow right now. You're paying almost A prices for a C asset. C and B assets at this point are pretty much like overbought. Is that essentially what's going, like pretty much what's going right. on? Right. Why, why would I buy something built in the 1960s and 1970s that's going to have explosive CapEx expenses in the next five years? Versus almost the same return for a B plus asset that was built 20 or 30 years later that's not going to have near the capital expense unknown. And that's a big problem that I think we have in the C-space market right now in the affordable housing market. The, the capital expense infrastructure in some of these buildings is a massive unknown. And so therefore, valuing the building and, and valuing the cost basis is very difficult. And I think a lot of people in the last few years have exceeded cost basis with their purchase they just don't know it yet. And so everybody listening, what I'm saying is, you know, you go out and buy this building and all of a sudden you don't realize that all the plumbing and, and a lot of the, the subflooring and a lot of the joists and all this stuff are rotten. You've miscalculated that deal because what you believe is cash flow won't be because now you're going to have to go in there and start really hammering away at the plumbing and the roofs and the this, that, and the other. But the problem right now is if you actually factor in CapEx into your, your cost basis, you just won't get an offer accepted. So you do nothing, you know? And so people kind of turn a blind eye to plumbing, electrical, infrastructure items, buy the C asset at a four cap rate and say, oh, that's okay, because we're going to raise the rent and then it'll be a great deal. Not if all the plumbing blows up in year three and your four or five operational cap rate turns into a, a one cap rate because it literally went down the plumbing. <laughs> that's not a good day. And I think that's a mistake a lot of people are making right now. It's what I call the CapEx tsunami. And I believe it is coming for the C-space uh, here in the next five years. So like my game plan is to invest in a bunch of syndications. I guess I should like really be watching out for the underwriting, you know, making Very. sure that the underwriting is, is done right. Because like most of the syndications I see are in the B and C class space. And I know that, you know, like you said, the cap, cap rates are getting really compressed yeah. right now. Yeah. You know, most people that will underwrite a C or mid C to sort of low B asset will calculate about $250 a door in capital expense needs. That's because that's what Fannie and Freddie dictate. Mm -mm. You're probably talking seven, 800 bucks easy for a lot of these assets in per door CapEx. If you get serious about it, destroys the underwriting. So what does your syndicator do? Just say, oh, well, never mind. I'll go home and, and get a job instead. No, they pencil whip your deal. 
And, and there's your accounting term for today from Georgia. That's what we call pencil whipping. You know, you, you kind of push all the numbers around on a spreadsheet to make it work. That's what uh, we all call pencil whipping. So don't pencil whip a deal. You know, that's a, that's a bad idea. And, and what happens is you just wind up with a bunch of irritated LPs. You know, it's not like you go bankrupt or anything. It's just you stop cash flowing. And, and you're, you get on that capital expense treadmill, you know, it's like a bad credit card. You're just stuck and you're just, you're, it's plumbing and it's roofs and it's something every month. And that absorbs that cash flow that you had predicted and that you went out and sold your LPs on. And now they're just not getting any returns. Maybe you'll sell the building one day and, and get some capital gains, but there's no more revenue. And that, that just, that's an irritating uh, syndication. It'll make you not enjoy the business. I've, I've been there. I've done that. And it's not fun. Is that $700 a door per year? That needs to accrue. Yeah, it depends. Yeah, yeah, you probably. Yeah, yes, yes. Per door, per year, seven, eight hundred bucks, depending on the asset, depending on the age. But sure. um, yeah, or or sit out and just calculate replacing all of the plumbing in, in all the buildings, which is again three, four thousand dollars, five thousand dollars a door. That's a real number. You start talking a couple hundred units. You know that that's serious money. Which in a syndicated model, the syndicator needs to bring that capital to the closing which then crushes the cash on cash return. See, and therein lies the problem with syndicating C-Space and what's gonna be a problem over the next five years is, is finding syndicators that are willing to underwrite accurately, which is gonna to be tough because it's gonna then make my job very difficult to come to you two and say, hey, here's a great deal. You're not gonna make money for the first three or four years because we're gonna be fixing everything up, but you'll make a ton of money in capital gains when we exit in five to seven. Yeah, the cash flow is king, isn't it? So see, that's where it's going to get a little difficult and a little dicey. And that's why I think we should wait on the C assets going forward until we can sort of shrug some of that risk through creative techniques. Then you get back into the C space, start dealing with these hairy assets that have a bunch of um, capital expense needs when you can kind of share that with the seller. At least that's my agenda. So speaking of some underwriting components that we see people sometimes mess up, Bill, how often have you gotten a syndication tax return prepared for less than eight hundred dollars? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I could, yeah, I couldn't imagine. I, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think look. I'm not sure. Yeah, that sounds. About, I don't know. I, I, we do a ton. You know, bulk batches of them. My firm kind of does them all. Yeah. But yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. You, you're getting people trying to be cheap on the. Uh, Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> we, we've had some people go through like some courses and oh, Lord. You know, they come and they're like, oh, I thought it was going to be $800. I'm like, no, oh, man, you're yeah. way off. <laughs> Look, let me, everyone listening, accounting has been the bane of my existence since the beginning of my business. Outsource it, get you a good company that you know and trust that does the work and does it well and pay them what they're worth and go on and do your business. Don't step over those dollars trying to pick up accounting pennies. That is not a good idea. That's not a sales pitch nor an advertisement for these guys. It's the truth. I'm telling you, don't, don't. there's way, way better places to try and cut corners than, than there. <laughs> don't do it. Yeah, no, no, hundred percent. I mean, there's a ton of people out there who, who, who try to pinch pennies there, but one question before we get into a, to a tax question, sure. uh, but is that, if you were to go and branch out to a new market today, are you gonna are you gonna rebuild a, a, a property management company? Or are you gonna go through the right there? No, I wouldn't. I would actually take my advice. What I would do is I would wait until I had several hundred units in that market, and then I would bring in in-house property management. And the absolute reason I wouldn't do it is because I've tried to manage stuff at a distance, and when you have no economy of scale, you wear all the hats. What if somebody doesn't show up to work that day? What if they literally don't walk into the office and unlock the door? 
you got to go over there and do it or your office is closed that day, which means no collections, no rent, no, you know, and so that's, that's a mistake. So no, I would absolutely not, even with my skill, I would not manage uh, more than probably a hundred miles or so. Um, you, you get outside of about a 99 mile radius, you're pushing it. So that's, that's would be my tip for anyone listening. Makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, because we are the real estate CPA podcast, we always have to ask a tax related question over the years. You know, you've, you've seen a lot of different things. What are your top tax strategies you use to minimize your taxes? Um, my, my top strategy is working with an accounting firm that I communicate well with. That's probably my top strategy because I've learned over the years that as an operator and a syndicator, we need to know a little bit about everybody's job. I need to be a little bit of an accountant, a little bit of a lawyer, a little bit of a banker. I don't need to know your job. I need to know what you do well enough to communicate with you what it is I need you to do for me. So if I don't know how to tell you what we're trying to do, you're not likely to get it done and we're going to go back and forth. So it's very important. My, my ta- top strategy is, is finding someone that communicates with you about strategy. You know, I'm not the tax expert. You are. I want to come in and sit down with you and go, here's what I'm trying to accomplish and have you kind of give me some guidance on how we can do it. I don't like accounts that say, give me the books. You give them the books and they just put it in a computer, crunch it out and go, here are your tax returns. Look, anybody can do that. You can do that on a website. I don't need an account to do that. You know, I need an account that's a strategist. So that's my top tip uh, is find a really good strategist based accounting firm that knows real estate, has experience in real estate, and they're willing to talk to you. That, that would be it. I don't have any kind of big, sexy 1031, you know, offshore kind of tax answer, but uh, just as a good old operator, find a company you work well with. Hard to disagree with that one. Um, so I know that you have a, a, a book you recently came out yeah. with. Um, would you be able to tell us uh, what the Absolutely. book is a little it's, bit about uh, it? It's called Creative Cash, and it focuses on techniques for creative financing. A lot of the stuff we've been talking about uh, on this call. So yeah, it's really going to be what everybody needs to navigate going forward into a recession market when debt pulls back. It's basically a book detailing how I built 402 units without walking into a bank, but in, in education mode, not story mode. It is about information, not motivation. So the book is not about telling you that you should be in real estate or what's your why or you know future value. Don't care. That's all on you. Whatever your why is, great. You need information. You need to know how to do it. I can help you with that. So if you've made the decision to be in real estate, then my information uh, is really going to be of paramount uh, importance. But yeah, it all focuses on creative financing, lease options, seller financing, a lot of the other techniques that um, I discussed. Is it going to be on like Amazon or is there like a website to go it's to? It's on Amazon right now. You can get it at Amazon, Audible, and Kindle. And uh, it's, we, I do have a website. It's uh, creativeapartmentdeals.com. So you can go to creativeapartmentdeals.com. We have the book there as well as a masterclass. So I actually have a full downloadable home study class on creativeapartmentdeals.com. So you can go there. And if anybody wants to reach out to me personally, um, it's bill at gobroadwell.com. And if you're looking to invest with my company and my uh, CEO, Tony Morgan, that's uh, broadwellpropertygroup.com. We have a section there you can fill out for investors. Go in there, fill out your information, and we'll be in touch directly. Nice. So, Bill, want to thank you so much for coming on. We're going to drop everything into the show notes for everybody who is listening, wants to check this stuff out. I know that I will definitely be checking it out. So, um, thank you. And uh, it was a pleasure yeah, having thanks you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.